Support for Design Matters Media is provided by Simple Human, a company who has just revolutionized the way we handle our trash, literally and figuratively. I don't know about you, but I hate handling garbage. It's sloppy and goopy and up until now, not very well designed. Simple Human has solved these messy situations with their beautifully sleek, touch-free voice and motion sensor trash can. It opens when you ask it to and effortlessly closes when you're done. Listeners to Design Matters can now visit simplehuman.com and enter the promotional code MATTERS at checkout to receive 15% off any sensor can with voice control. Simple Human. It's the smarter, easier way to throw your trash away. Most information does not inform. Most questions do not have a quest. I'm interested in the informed quest. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 13 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with the founder of the TED Conference, Richard Saul Werman, about learning and education. If you had a learning system, you wouldn't have an educational system. The educational system is from the top down, and a learning system is from the bottom up. Here's Debbie Millman. Richard Saul Werman wants to get it, and he wants you to get it too. Get what, you may ask? Anything and everything. Werman has made a business of understanding what he doesn't know and passing on what he does know. His fascination with technology, entertainment, and design led him to found the TED Conference. And with over 90 books to his name, Werman is clearly still at it. His latest book, Understanding Understanding, is Werman's fantasy of being the dumbest person in the room and being able to identify all the connections of how other people think, talk, explain, and visualize. Richard Saul Werman, welcome to Design Matters. I believe it's fine to be here. Thank you. Well, Richard, the first thing I want to ask you about is your teddy bears. I understand you have a collection that includes bears that have been to Mount Everest, one that has traveled to the Bismarck, and one that has even been on the Titanic. So what's this with you and bears? Uh, When I founded TED in uh, 1984, I was fat. Fat as in heavy? Yeah, I was piggish. (laughs) <laughs> and it was called Ted, so I thought the teddy bear would be uh-huh. a kind of self-deprecating mockery and that people liked uh, teddy bears. And I gave everybody a teddy bear and designed a new one every year. And then I had all these teddy bears and then people asked me, said they were going to Mount Everest or they were going to the Titanic. I knew people. Oh, so people actually took it to the depths of the sea? Oh, Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, and then it squishes down to a very little thing when it gets down there, and then it pops back up when it gets up. So I have a few of them that have been there, and I lose some as I move to different houses. But, yeah, it, the very, not one te- – I mean, different you teddy bears went them, different. Yeah. One went to uh, – up in Canada, and it was taken by a uh, a bear, so we don't have it, but a bear took it. And, sort of meta. Yeah. <laughs> but it's – I've never been asked that question before about my teddy bears. They just are – I understand your father, Morris Lewis Werman, was an executive at Bayak Cigars and quite an important man in Philadelphia's Jewish business circles. And I think you've referred to him as a macha, which is essentially the Yiddish word for player. How much did he influence you? First of all, I've never heard him call Morris Lewis Werman. He was ML, 
His brother was HP. His, my grandfather was JS. And I go by my initials RSW. It's probably because of that. I don't remember ever seeing Mocker. He was a, his life was cigars. Uh, my, my mother's family were very poor kosher butchers in, in Reading, Pennsylvania. I mean, really poor, poor. And uh, so I thought both sides of my family dealt in death, one killing chickens and the other killing people with cigars. Um, but he loved cigars. He loved, he loved from, he was involved with cigars and his father before him from the seeds to growing, growing tobacco in Cuba and, and in Sumatra at one time and Connecticut and Pennsylvania. And he blended it and all. He was just an executive. He didn't own the company. He was not a wealthy man. There's no family money. I don't remember ever calling him a mockery. I must have said it if you if you write it down, so it must have been written somewhere. But well, that's I, not a word I would ordinarily no, think I'm sure of you on fa- my own. I'm sure you found it, but I don't remember doing that. <laughs> it's a good word, though. That's a very good word. You said this about your experience in high school. I'm not a rebel. I wasn't an unruly student in high school. I didn't misbehave. But at the same time, the principal and class advisor at graduation wouldn't shake my hand because they knew I knew that they weren't very smart and they were doing everything wrong. What kinds of things were they doing wrong? Well, the whole educational system is wrong. And I, I don't, I didn't make a point of it, but they somehow knew that I knew and that what you do many times in your life, you, you do by agreement. You know, you don't, uh, well, you don't, you don't push somebody in the street. You don't, you, you, you behave in a certain way because we have an agreement to be the same way the dollar isn't worth anything. There's an agreement. It's worth something. Well, that's uh, the way almost uh, everything is. Everything is a construct. Every, well, but the dollar used to be backed by gold. Uh, there used to be so somewhat penalties for things. There's, there's, so we just do it because it's easier. And uh, but you can you can make it. When I went to the university, I made up my own rules, and I did have a uh, a different agreement. I had made agreement the first day of class with the dean of the school. What kind of agreement? I could take any and all courses I wanted for as many hours of the day and many days of the week as I wanted, as long as I maintained uh, an A minus average. Were you actually registered for all the classes, or yes. did you? Wow. So how many credits did you end up graduating with? You went to University of Pennsylvania for a bachelor's and a master's degree. Did you do this all the way through? Yes. So how many classes? Do you remember? How many classes were you taking a semester? I, I was ta- well, I was going to school all day, all night, six days a week because classes didn't meet. And nights. Classes didn't meet on Sunday. And I was obsessed. I, I've never worked as hard in my life. My hair fell out. Um, it was a useful ex- ex- experiment for me. And I took maybe a triple load. And, and I graduated first with the highest average. And yet you feel like the education system is all wrong. Well, I made it right because I was able to take things that interested me totally. And so, Learning is remembering what you're interested in. My whole life is following my personal path of interest, not, not somebody's educational system. So the reason they knew I knew is they knew I knew that the educational system is basically like a gin rummy game. You remember the cards of one hand and forget them for the next. In in, in school, you are you you, you have to remember uh, enough stuff to put it down bulimically on a piece of paper called a test, and you forget it. 
and you don't remember because you weren't interested in the first place. About 80% of the things you take, you're not interested in. And about 90% of the skill sets you're told to learn, some learn them fast, some learn it slow. Everybody's taught to learn them at the same rate. Or sometimes you don't even need to know the skill to do your job. Well, I can't type. I can't do anything very well. I'm not, I'm not so smart. But I can see patterns. And that's all that matters to me is pattern recognition and finding those paths through patterns that makes things understandable to myself. And your opening, you would use, refer to the fact that I do this so other people can understand. I don't. I do it so I can understand. I am trying to solve my, my puzzle, my, my indulgent puzzle of how to understand something that interests me. And now, what, if what, I can makes un- you, what motivates you to share that? No, I just do it. Well, know, why publish books? Why have conferences? Well, because I'm so lazy that if I don't bring it to fruition, it doesn't happen. It, it just—it's a way of—it's a way of keeping tra- yourself accountable. Keeping myself, yeah, c- clear. Yeah, that's—it's—it's it's because I know who I am. I—I—I I, I, I w- I wouldn't do anything. I would be lazy. Have you always known who you are? I think so. I don't mean that. In I know a, how you meant it, okay. and I said I think so, and I said it quietly. When you say things quietly, does that mean that you're not quite as sure? No, I said it. That that had a solemn, solemn. It was solemn. It was it was reflective. You at one point in your early life wanted to be a painter. Yeah, and I, I still paint. But your father didn't want you to study painting. No, I went to uh, Temple uh, uh, the Tyler School of Art during uh, high school. I went to night school during high school, and in summers I went there and and learned etching and lithography. And some painting, a little bit of sculpture, but etching, lithography, and printing I, I took there. So he wasn't against that. No, he got me in there. But what about I, the aptitude test? He thought— Tell I, us about the aptitude test. Explain it so that our listeners know what you're talking about. We're pulling up all the carpets. Absolutely. That's what Design um, Matters is. Okay. My, my father uh, discouraged me from going into the cigar business. He— encouraged me to have an interesting life. He never went to college. I thought he was extremely bright. As I grew older, I realized that I'm probably smarter than he was. But I didn't know that for many, many years, so I had this. He was a a, a figure to me. And uh, his charisma, his ways of acting uh, in social situations has helped me a great deal. He thought I should make a good choice. So he had a friend. He had always had friends. I mean, I went to see the Pope because of friends that he had. A friend of his ran a small college and he got his doctorate, was a president of a college, but who got his doctorate in testing. So I spent two days testing and it turned out that the three things that came out on top was art, uh, archaeology. It wasn't art. It was archaeology, architect. uh, architect, architecture and hairdressing. <laughs> and um, so at that moment when I was 17, I've never been to a barber since. I cut my hair. I've had hair shaved off. I've had it in ponytails. I thought, well, if I scored right, I should do that. It's not particularly nice hair, and I don't keep it particularly nice. I don't You've have got a, a pretty full head, so that's good. A full head of hair or a full head? Both. Um, so I did that, and uh, but he didn't care if I was a painter. And But architecture seemed to be as a simple puzzle. From architecture, you can move into archaeology. From architecture, you can move into painting. So I chose to go into architecture because if I changed my mind, I could move into other uh, – it was a pattern. And it turned out I stayed with architecture, but I also did archaeology. And I also painted. I painted 12 hours every week all through the university. 
and I still paint on and off a kind of sumi painting of watercolors on on a very uh, on a rice paper that spreads it very quickly. You have to do it very quickly, and I paint kind of imaginary birds. They're interesting. I don't. I've never shown them. I, in university, I showed them. I got a first prize every year through the university wide thing, including the Pennsylvania Academy of Arts in watercolors. But then I stopped painting after I graduated. You, after you graduated, you went to work for the renowned architect Louis Kahn, and I read that all the best students at the University of Pennsylvania's architecture school worked in his studio, and they ate with him, drank with him, and loaned him money. <laughs> That's right. Why would they? Why was he borrowing money from students? Lou was uh, the most extraordinary person I ever knew, and he affected my life fundamentally. He wasn't always nice. And he certainly never made a dollar, and he didn't carry money, and he couldn't, didn't have a driver's license, and he didn't know how to drive, and he didn't drive. He had a special little car that allowed him to sit in the front seat of a taxi. He was uh, just himself and uh, certainly was not a good businessman and died in debt. So loaning him money or buying him dinner was okay. He told me a funny story that I've never told, so I'll tell it. This, so this will be interesting for you because you're doing this podcast thing. Late in his life, I think he was almost 70, he, he called me and he called me Ricky. He said <laughs> he, was, he was smiling and his face was all scarred. So when he smiled, it would have had a very strange look to it, a sort of a wrinkly smile. And he said he was just on Market Street in Philadelphia and there was uh, who, somebody called an old lady. She probably was 65, you know, and uh, she was at the curb and it looked like she was hesitating about crossing the street. So uh, he he was always dressed sort of frumpy and with a mistied bow tie. And um, he took her, her arm and guided her across the street and she gave him a quarter. <laughs> and he thought that was so funny. <laughs> that's, that's and it was endearing. It was an endearing <laughs> story. You said that um, though he was demonic and adored – he didn't obey the rules because it didn't occur to him that there were rules. That's correct. And did you think that there were rules at the time? Was that a, a sort of motto that you ended up learning from him or being inspired by I, through him? I, I don't know if you learn things. Uh, even when you introduce this, uh, this book I just finished and some other books I've done, they're really meant to give people permission. So I think being with him gave me permission to be more of me. And I think a teacher who's worth something doesn't really teach. They allow their people who don't know their students to be more of themselves. And it's that permission giving that I believe in. So I'm not an academic. I, I don't think I'm teaching anybody. I don't want syncophants. I don't want – that's just not interesting. But I am interested that by example maybe I give people permission so they can see if I – you know, I'm a sort of screw-up. I don't do things in the way maybe. But I don't purposely not do them that way. I don't purposely go against the grain. This is not – I'm not an action. So it's not a stance. It's not a stance. I don't care enough about people to do that. I just do what I think is OK to do. It's what I feel like doing. What's – is that? And sometimes it appears – it appears that I'm taking a stance or – I think in one little quote that I found that I forgot I had said is that uh, telling the truth is a political act and it's maybe more that that I just tell the truth, and then it appears to be a political act, but I don't mean it to be. In 1963, you started your own architecture firm with two Penn graduates. Um, 
John Murphy and Alan Levy, and the partnership lasted 13 years. Mm -hmm. One of the highlights of your career at that point was an ambitious plan for the redevelopment of Penn's Landing, a downtrodden piece of property along the waterfront in Pennsylvania. And you participated in an international competition for the job, and you brought your response. It was a single page, laminated like a menu, to the meeting with the city officials, and you told them that you didn't need them to see your credentials. All they needed to see was the one-page document which stated, you don't know what you want. We will work with you to help you figure it out. And you won the business. What made you decide to take that route? Was that the first time you were ever sort of that ballsy in the way that you pursued getting a new piece of business? No, it doesn't seem to be ballsy to me. I was just telling the truth. I was just thinking that the answer that you can't know what you're going to do until you get involved in doing it and what you can pledge is to work with people to solve the performance that you that grows as you have conversations with people. That, so uh, was that your sort of standard response to always bring in one sheet? I don't think I have a standard anything. Did you do that more than once? I don't remember. Really? When you say really to me... It questions what I say. It does, because and I can't believe that you don't remember something. I think you're too smart for that. When I say I don't remember, I don't remember. So when you say really, it means you're not telling the truth, or you don't believe that I don't remember. I don't. Well, <laughs> you have to take that to bed with you. Okay, fair enough. Um, in, in an interview that I read with you from your website, you said that you were a failure and left destitute at 45. What happened? Why were you a failure and left destitute at 45? We weren't getting work for a number of reasons in Philadelphia with our architectural practice. And we'd close our office, and I had nothing to do. And since I'm sort of abrasively charming, it's very hard for me to get a job. So I, my money got used up. I didn't have any money. So I had to figure out uh, how to uh, survive. And at that point, I think for some time you were living in a flop house. Oh, so it's not it, – this is a path that is so uninteresting to me. My life has been just – I've been so blessed in my life that to talk about things where my life was difficult is, is so what? It's, I have been so fortunate to have allowed – to have a life where I could do so many things I wanted to do to think up ideas, to allow my con to work so they got paid for, that I could be independent, uh, that I could have extraordinary conversations with people. Uh, man, it's, it's, I, there's nothing I want to complain about, about people. Oh, no, 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 this isn't no, complaining. But it's implicit. If I, had, if I was out of money, implicit if I was living in a flop house, that things weren't going well. They were going the way they went, and it probably was very good for me. Everything that happened was part of shaping me, you know, going to the jungle, begging across America, of, of doing things that were unpleasant, didn't things that terrified me. We're, we're just fine. I, I don't get over the terror, but I know what terrifies me. I don't take any of those things as, as anything to dwell upon. They're just – it's okay. It's like – if you walk if, – if the floors are hot and your feet are bare, your feet sting. But you choose to walk there. And it's not a matter of – it's not part of my story. 
Part of my story is next. Part of my story is what I'm going to think of next. Part of my story is solving the puzzle, and then my warranty runs out. I understand. Part of my story in the way that I conduct this podcast is to really understand the trajectory of a person's life, the choices that they made, the obstacles that they went through, and it is pretty clear that you've had a remarkable life and your story is really out there about all you've accomplished and the amazing, amazing things that you have done. I am sort of endlessly curious about how a person becomes who they are and how they are able to overcome the hardships that everyone encounters. I don't, I don't think I had it so hard. I think I've been – I've had it really easy. I've been fortunate. I don't, I don't think my life has been hard. People's lives are often hard. I don't think I have anything to complain about or anything that was hard about my life. It has been really fortunate. And the mention of a flop house or the mention of being destitute is, is, is trivial to me. It just happened. It's, it's like when you trim your nails, sometimes you cut the cuticle. That's all right. It's nothing you're going to take to a dinner party. It's not what I think about. For me, it's not about complaining or bragging. It's about just sharing the path that you were on and the things that you went through. I think it's pretty remarkable to be at 45 years old, destitute. I was out of work and, and I didn't and, have skills, so that was hard. But being hard. Well, you did last, have skills. You were an architect. But I don't have skills because I can't do drawings that well. I can't build models that well. I don't do anything that well. My skill set is meager. I can't type. I can't read hard books. I get by, and it's I'm amazed by. It. I'm I'm like in the audience watching this guy kind of hobbled, getting through and getting a new pair of pants. Uh, it's just simple. I I don't think it's so. Okay, let's just move on. Um, California is where you started self-publishing your first guidebook, L.A. Access. What made you decide to do that at that time? Like everything else, I moved there. I couldn't find my way around. I couldn't find a good book guidebook, so I did one. Nobody asked me to do it. I didn't have a publisher and I didn't know the, the – the book, each of my project is a roadmap from not knowing to knowing. I didn't know L.A. I was living there. I couldn't find something. If there was a good guidebook, I wouldn't have done my guidebook. I'm not trying to do guidebooks. I'm not trying to do anything. I'm trying to fill in the, the black hole that's in your stomach of not knowing something that I'm curious about. I didn't do it for the other people. It seemed to help me. And what helps me, because I'm kind of dumb, it helps other people too. You've said that your biggest lesson in life has been understanding what it's like to not understand. That's it. And this is with you every minute of the day. Absolutely. I, I said that this morning. I had, a com had several conversations already this morning, three big ones. One with somebody I had never met before, extraordinary man, who started the Anderson Hospital Clinic, the best cancer hospital in the world. Not according to him, according to everything. If you research it after I'm on, after I'm off and you go online, you'll see what's the best cancer place in the United States and who founded it and who ran it. What's well, this man? We'd talked about cancer for a couple hours and we'd never met each other. And when he was finished, I, 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 I generally understood what he was talking about because he was, he was quite articulate. But I said that he suffered from the disease of familiarity. What is that? That he knew so much about what he was talking about that he didn't understand what it was like not to understand. So he didn't sort of let me in quite. And that's – most faculty members have that in schools. Most 
people have that when they know something very well, it's very difficult to understand what it's like not to know the the doorway, the threshold in, and then you never get to understand the subject or what they're talking about if you miss those few, first few steps. When you said that it was difficult for him to let you in, what, is, what do you mean by that? Um, if you don't realize that the person doesn't know how to count and you're talking about numbers, mm. you didn't let him in, but it's not a... It's not an act to try to keep them out. It's just that you don't know they don't know how to count. And a lot of conversations between people never get started. It's not that they come apart. They never get started because one person doesn't understand what it's like not to understand what they're talking about. Or one person is afraid to let on that they don't know something that the other person is talking about. Uh, That's also a possibility. You said that it's obvious we understand from numbers, words, and pictures, and a combination of those things. But even beyond that, there are still many idiosyncratic ways that various people understand things. Mm-hmm. And you talked about the the way in which we could organize information, whether it be hierarchical or categorical or alphabetical. What are the various idiosyncratic ways that people understand things? Uh, anything that takes place in my past, I always say, is about 20 years ago. Uh, this, so it's not a, really a number. But about 20 years ago, <laughs> I uh, came up with um, a notion that there was only five ways of organizing information, which I called latch, location, alphabet, time, category, and hierarchy. That's become known not by me but by others as Werman's Law. And I've talked about it and written about it so minimally – Millions of people have seen it. It's been very helpful to me. Someday, maybe somebody will prove it wrong, and that's okay, too. You've stated that learning is remembering what interests you. What if you aren't interested in something that is important to know? How do you encourage somebody to try to open their mind to the possibilities of understanding something that they weren't aware of as being important? I probably wouldn't do it. Learning is remembering what you're interested in. If you find something you're interested in, it connects to everything. I think it connects back to even something they didn't know they were interested in. I think you can make a loop from any place through all of understandable information. We're taught that we want a great educational system and that I believe in a learning system. And I think they're fundamentally completely different. If you had a learning system, you wouldn't have an educational system. Uh, the educational system is from the top down and a learning system is from the bottom up. You would have guides helping you from whatever you're interested in. If you're interested in automobiles or socks or shoelaces, whatever you're interested in touches everything else if you have a, a reasonable guide. There's certain benefits to knowing math. There might not be interest, but there certainly are benefits. And I would hate to think that people were only capable of learning about things that they had a predisposition for because of socialization or culture or their way of of being brought up. The idea of math and reading and letters and numbers and all that takes my argument to, you know, reducto ad absurdum. I think in the pathway of being interested in something you would find that there was a a numerical element and a linguistic element that would prove to be interesting and necessary for you to make those connections, period. I'm not trying to, you know, redesign a hairpin. I think it would work. I believe it. 
I've never tried it. I'm not going to try it. I live my life that way. It works for me. I'm not going to set up a school to do that. I just believe it deeply. I would like to believe it deeply, but in the world that we're living in now, with the cultural echo chamber, it seems like we're only seeking information that helps us believe that what we already know is correct. I have to go back three steps. Most information does not inform. Most questions do not have a quest. I'm interested in the informed quest. I could give you a newspaper if somebody had a New York Times, point to any story in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and ask you the simplest questions about it, and, and their answers are not there. You can't find out about it because nothing is written that I can find that pulls you in to an understandable story. Give me Whether, an example. Could you give me an example? Oh, it just was three earthquakes in, in Japan, and they, they have the numbers of those earthquakes. They don't really tell you exactly where they are, what it means, or what it means if it's, if it's that. They give you some numbers of how many miles below the surface it is, or what kind of earthquake it is, what kind of damage can you, what is the area, that, there might be a tsunami. Why might there be a tsunami? What is the questions you could ask that would come to your head when you read this except, oh, a 7.1? Wow, that's bigger than a 6.8. But how much bigger? You know, it's, it goes on a log table bigger, but they don't really tell you how, how big that is. Or that a 7 can do less damage, depending on what kind it is and it's lasting and how far below the surface it is, than a 5. And a 5 can decimate something. It is just not clear anything that anybody writes. And I don't mean being encyclopedic about it. But make it understandable relative to something you can understand. And you cannot understand a 7.1 earthquake by itself. The earthquake in San Francisco that I was in on the 17th floor, it just so happens, was a 7.1 earthquake, the big one that put down that one part of the bridge, which went down not because of the, the earthquake was so bad. It was lousily built, which they found out. It was broke all the codes. Few people died because some gas mains broke in it, and the, it was faulty again in a, in, a, in a part of town where the I was in it. It wasn't so bad, <laughs> and I was in the heart of it. It was it was an interesting experience. I fell off my chair, and the elevator stopped on the in the building, and the power went out. But I understood. But how do you understand what really happens? Because you then see a five point one earthquake or a five point six in Haiti, and the whole place is demolished. Well, it can't be the same story. It's not understandable. So we, it, it, it's, it's the words of a scientist, not the words of communication. How would you have put it in another way? Oh, you're asking me to do somebody's work for them. No, I'm just I would, asking your opinion. I would say what, what it was like, you know, what it would feel like to the audience that's going to read it. And depending on what the audience was, you could give – Give examples of what it would feel like. It might feel like jumping off a two-foot-high bed. I mean, it might feel like uh, if you had some dishes, they would go on the floor or all the books would fall out or you'd have to lay or knock you out of your chair. Uh, and you should say, this lasted for 14 seconds. Look at your watch and think of what that would be like for 14 seconds. The last question I want to ask you is about a question you have often started conversations with. You state, you don't know me, but you owe me. Why is that a favorite conversation starter for you? Uh, it sets an edge to, to everything else I say, and it's provocative. And to start something, I want to make sure the audience is awake, and, it's, and they automatically don't like me. And I have to win my way back into their belief system. 
Why do you because that, that struggle is good? Why? You know, it's because I like that struggle. That the the edge. I like terror. I like the edge of things. It's the edge that keeps me awake. It's the edge that's interesting to me. I don't want comfort. Is not your friend or my friend. I don't want to be comfortable. I want the discomfort of thinking of the next thing, the discomfort of what doesn't work, the understanding of failure, and the joy of confidence, and the discomfort of terror, and the joy of admiration. what What does the discomfort of terror mean to you? It means that I can't figure it out yet. I mean, coming here and talking to you is terrifying, but I'm confident it'll be okay. But I'm terrified, but I'm confident it'll be okay, and I could keep on saying that. Why are you terrified? I just always am because there's there's always the edge of of what I'm going to think of or what I say or or whether it's, it's what I've said is clear to myself. Is it, it a lack of control that you're worried about? No. So then why I'm, I'm would so, there be... I'm not, not very much under control. So I know I'm always going to stick my foot in my mouth. I'm aware of that. You could edit this thing out. My feet, my feet could be sticking out of my ears. I know that. But why would I want to do that? I didn't say you wanted to do that. No, I said why, you could. But why... why you, do quote my language. Okay. I said you could do that. I didn't say you would want to do that. I'm not saying that you're saying that. I'm actually trying to respond with the notion that something like that wouldn't be something that I would consider. And so I'm curious as to well, why nice you think you... I would. Okay. I didn't say you would. I said you could. Right. But that didn't say you would. I know. but w- this, if... is, this is just back and forth. No, it isn't. No, this isn't, Richard. I'm actually trying to come back to you with a response that's genuine. And then you're spinning it around. You said that I could do that. And I'm saying, yeah, I could. But what would that benefit be? Why would I want to do that? That's just not something that I feel would be noble. Well, I think that's, I think that's good. And I'm, I now appreciate your nobility more. Thank you. I appreciate that. Anything else you want to talk about? Sure. I would like to talk about this idea that I want to do next. Okay. Because I am seriously unable yet to figure out what I'm doing. Uh, When I describe it thinly, people seem to want to work with me on it. And I don't know why. Does seem that anybody running for any kind of office, elected office, or an office of president of a big company or dean of a school or whatever, is asked a series of questions about what they're going to do. The person running for that job also independently says what they're going to do. Uh, the questions in debates. When there are big political debates from the press are always, what are you going to do? And academics, when they do, or and not academics, everybody writing books for business and everybody giving speeches from the stage are saying what you have to do, what we must do, and the bullet points of how we do this and all that. I am drowning in action, action items that people want to take. Action items connected with the word have to, must, could, also, would, all those things. And so I have this desire 
to take those five subjects and describe those subjects independent of any point of view, of so any some advice. objective way. Some objective way with deep, understandable backup to it in cardiographic terms, in, in numeric terms, some language, but not too much language, so too much doesn't have to be translated if you'd want to do it in a different language. So that it leads to being able to have an informed quest arise from me and then other people possibly, from the press, from the interviewers, that they can ask better questions. Isidore Robbie, who uh, came to the United States months old in 1898, and uh, 1899, he was born in 1898, moved to New York, went to school. His friends would come home from school every day. And their mothers would say, what did you learn at school today? And Izzy would come home from school and his mother would say, Izzy, did you ask any good questions today? And Isidore Robbie, when he got his Nobel Prize, said, this is why I got my Nobel Prize. Because my mother always asked that I have good questions or what were the questions? The interlocutory that you and I are having and some of the granular uh, friction between us is I don't think some of the questions are good questions. They're provocative, but I don't think they're really good questions. And I so deeply believe in the good question, the question that is so creative that you learn something from the question. I, I got a uh, from um, Babson University. Mm -hmm. They are a school of innovation. I've been there. I've gone to Babson actually. Okay, I got the I got a uh, honorary doctorate from Babson, which is strange for a designer to get an honorary doctorate. Maybe it isn't. It's a school Not of really innovation. It's a school of innovation. And I guess so. I was surprised, but I didn't know what the school was. I had to look it up when they asked me. And uh, so I gave the speech at, at that ceremony. And I, I never prepare for anything. I certainly didn't prepare for today. Obviously, that's by the clunkiness of my answers. And I walked over with the president with the robes on, the funny robes, and the clothes I always wear. And music was playing, that same stupid music, and it was hot. And we came into the auditorium, went up on stage, and then each person was called on stage and their name had to be read out and there was a lot of people from foreign lands with very strange names for anything I could pronounce. So it had to, I didn't have to pronounce it, but she did. She had to shake hands with everybody and took forever, it seemed, even though it wasn't that big a class. And then I gave my speech. It turned out I gave two speeches. I gave one to the audience and then I turned my back on the audience and gave her one. And the one to them was about just what I'm talking about, that you in order to get into universities or colleges, you take tests and you answer questions. And you go through school and you answer questions. And what's, what really interests me is the asking of a question. That's not part of our gestalt to really figure out the structure of a question and how to ask a good question. So I said, here's an idea. You're in the 
innovation business here. Here's somebody who could make a large amount of money and have, have a great force if they devised an SAT, ACT t- type test where you choose at some random way 10 subjects and 10 sub-subjects under those, those 100 things. And what you had to do was write 100 questions about these subjects. That's a much better way of figuring out who should be in your clubhouse. Then I turned to the president and I said, this is a school of innovation. Why don't you have a great TV set up there, a great flat screen with the person's face on there and their name, and you, it, they say their name. And uh, maybe they just smile at you or they say three words or they just say, hi, mom and dad, <laughs> whatever. And you just go through them. They never come on stage. They don't have these robes on. Let them just wear a nice scarf and have Mrs. Masoni make it. And then have somebody compose extraordinary music that has to do with the, all the national people who are here, from international people here. Why don't you innovate how a graduation ceremony is, how it can be held, and how the tape of it can be given to everybody so they have their yearbook? Then I walked off. Did they take any of your advice? I don't think so, and I never followed up on it. But it was good advice. I got it out. What makes a good question to you? First of all, I think that's a good question. A good question takes many forms. A good question has sometimes within it the answer. A good question sometimes can be answered yes or no, or I don't know, which actually answers the question sometimes. But a good question is revealing to the next step. It is like a good conversation, and it never has to be friendly. I had a very tough Back and forth lunch today with John came and asking his advice, he said, of radical media. And it was questions back and forth, and it wasn't always pleasant. But it leads to the next step. It doesn't get stopped because it goes nowhere. So I think a good question is a creative act that leads to uh, an epiphany, a, a clarity about something. Do you think that a good question is one that you have to like? No. So if you don't like the question, does it mean it's a bad question? No. My not wanting to answer certain questions was an answer to the question. Right. But you also were clear that you didn't like some of my questions. Yeah, that's fine. They might be good questions and I don't like them. And my mood in not liking them tells you a lot about what I feel about the question or the information. No, it's not a total waste. No, I don't think it's a waste at all. I think this is actually a really interesting conversation. I'm curious as to why you like to talk about certain things and don't like to talk about certain things when talking about yourself. I like talking about things that lead me into the next thing I want to solve, of hearing myself talk and hearing what I, how it, what the path is. I, I am not interested in legacy. I'm not interested in what I did I'm just not interested in it. I want to thank you for being on the show today. It's been an enlightening and unusual experience. I would love to do it over. Okay. I'm happy to do it over. So you want to do this my way this time? Because I want to talk about your past. You don't want to talk about your past. 
It's so uninteresting to okay, me. Okay, it's uninteresting to you because you've lived it. But most of the questions that I have here are things that most people don't know about you. And I think it takes a lot of courage to be able to say to people or to show people the things that you've overcome, which is extraordinary. And that's my opinion. And you don't have to believe that. But that's no, but, why but, I wanted to talk about it. But what I've overcome, I have had such an easy life relative to the humanity that I've been surrounded with for my whole life. I overcome so little. If I had been very wealthy, it would have been so much harder. If I had been very poor, it would be so much harder. If I, if I had talent or brains, it would have been so much harder. I got the see, sweet see, spot, my that, sweet spot okay, of this you, innocence that was Richard, really you useful. Can't, you can't just say something like, I don't have talent or I don't have skills. It's, that's bullshit. That's bullshit. And nobody listening is going to say that's true or that's even remotely possible. So you could feel that way about yourself, but that's certainly not the way the world sees you. And so... But the world is not part of my... Any part of my life. The world is not my life. Then why have you been on a world stage for so much of it? Because I'm so lazy. If I don't get there, I don't do any work. If I didn't do a book, I w- if I didn't bring things to conclusions, I would just have this idea, blah, blah. And here's another idea, blah, blah. But what, and I so need that, some- why, that could be enough. No, I mean, it couldn't. No, I, for you, it wouldn't be for enough. Me it's but not for some enough. people, it's enough. For Emily I don't, but, Dickinson, I don't deal, it was enough. I don't, I don't deal about some people. They're not part of my 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 modus operandi. I know that it's not part of your. I, modus I, my op- life is this big, and it's round. It's immeasurable in that way. I don't have any ambition. But you used to be very ambitious. Oh, I used to be. When I was in school, I was very ambitious. When I opened my architectural firm, I was ambitious. Uh... 1880, 1980. <laughs> so pre-Ted, you stopped being ambitious. Yeah, I just thought I'd have a dinner party. But you were really controlling about everything. You picked out every bit of food. You designed the badges. You but that's not being ambition. That's no, being a control freak. And, yeah. and it's also not wanting to have staff. And also a simple observation that it took longer cost more and wasn't as good if I had people working with me. If I asked somebody to choose the food, they'd know that I was the boss and I was going to make the final decision. They'd choose two or three ways of doing the food, show it to me, do a lot of work, and then I'd eventually make some changes to one of them and end up doing it anyway. I just choose all the food. I pick all the furniture. I pick all the, the – why am I going to let somebody at a conference run the show or program it or do any of that? Well – I wouldn't do I'm it. Gonna, I, I know. I know it's not done that way now. No, I think that's fine. I think that's. I think I actually admire that. I probably I mean, this, this would this do book, the same thing. This book you're talking about. You see, the staff was one person who would never take. Was not a graphic designer. She had an architectural course at uh, Roger Williams, and she had to learn in design. And I had to do sketches. I can't type. Um, I don't use a computer well, so. Those are the skill sets you would need. And I only had, and she does use the computer very well. She's bright. She's terrific. And we did that book, which is a fairly complicated graphic design book. There's something about having the skill of 
seeing what is possible that you are actually quite good at. I also think that having a robust imagination and being able to see patterns, pattern recognition is probably the most important skill a person could ever have. I am skilled at that, and I have a fantastic memory. I can't memorize, but I have a fantastic memory. It's really good, and particularly good relative to my age. So I have those two skills. I'm not kicking dirt on that. Pattern recognition is the tango with a very good memory. Because when you speak, it's like I'm in Times Square, and I see words going across your head. So I hear you, and I see the words. And as I see the words, I connect those words to something else right away, and I remember them, and I respond to them, and I know when you say a word, and then you say you didn't say a word, and I know you said it, because I do listen to every word, word by word. I parse them, see them, and see their pattern, and uh, it just goes at wanting to see the connections between one thing and another. It's when I described the uh, earthquake The first thing is maybe jumping off a bed, maybe having this. It's the way you describe things. And it's the picture that comes into my room, my head, which is the room, of how I would remember what effect it would have on me or what effect it did have on me. Actually, that little thing was a very good indication of how poorly it is described. And I just saw that today. But truly, every story is that way, that it's not. And we read it and we think we've understood something. And what we come away with, oh, 7.1, that's bigger than 6.1. Maybe. <laughs> it might not be. And it, 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 there's so many other factors involved with it, and we are cheated by what we're told all the time. But it's also, I think, the limits of language, because in as much as you might not be able to understand the difference between a 7.1 and a 6.1, how many different ways can you talk about love? And people might not see it the same way or feel it the same way. But but no, this is a very measurable thing. It's one number of a series of indicators of what an earthquake is. Right. Because it's the time of an earthquake, the depth of an earthquake. It's also where it is. It's the building code in the place where the earthquake is. There's various things that have to do with it. And what they do and the headlines, if you look at the newspaper tomorrow, will only give you a 7.1 shock in Japan. But I, I would say that it's not the reporting. I think it's the language. I think this okay. is a linguistic issue. Personally, I personally feel no, that. If you say it, I know it's personal. You don't have to say personally. All right. And you don't have to say that too. You know, you're just being obnoxious. But to say personally, everything we're saying, everything you say is personally and everything I say is personally. I'm considering whether I should do anything else. I don't mean about this conversation. I know. About whether I keep on having all these ideas and I've done a bunch of them and you know seven or eight of them are on medicine and I'm passionate about that and a lot are on cartography and I'm still working on new cardiographic systems and I have a website called the Urban Observatory and that's with Jack Dangerman and that's going to go to three, two, three dimensions next year and then maybe four dimensions with some of the information over time. So I'm interested in cartography and I'm interested in architecture I mean, some things are gradual. I mean, you can have a small house, a bigger house, a bigger house, a bigger house. A bi- incrementally, you can have houses that are nice, nicer. Incrementally, you can do most things. Incrementally, you can have a plane and then you can have coach and you can have business class and first class. But when you have a private plane, that's a gap. It's really much better than first class. 
And that interests me. Gaps interest me. Uh, gaps are very telling over, over history and time. So the spaces between. Space between and how big they are, whether they exist at all. Often I will, in an intense lecture, I will stop talking for a little bit. And it's very manipulative. And the audience gets very edgy because they think, oh, he forgot where he was and he's old. Maybe he's having a stroke or something. Then they become alert and then they change it and they see that I'm not falling down. And that pause brings a kind of air to the room, a kind of strange mix in the room. And it's, it is manipulative, but it is like putting one of those things cleaning out between your teeth. Uh, relief. It's, it's, it's relief. It's an interesting thing to do in your day sometimes, that pause. I'm not talking about woo-woo yogi. No, kind I know. Of, I think it's sort of a John even, Cage kind of a but, pause. But, but, but just in your, in your speech, in your daily life, in your thinking of clearing out and really saying, I don't know anything. I just don't know anything. And it feels good and it feels so terrifying and that is terrifying to me. And yet I take comfort in it because I come out of it with confidence uh, to move on. How often do you think about death? All the time. And have you always or is it as you've aged? I think I've always thought about death. I think about it more now. I think about how many years now, what I'm going to do in the next, I think, I, I suspect I'll get 89 out of it. Maybe I won't, but I mean, that's what I'm, I divide my money by seven and see if, how much I'll have every year. I want my last check to bounce. You said that you're not sure if you want to do anything anymore. No, sometimes I get a wave of that every once in a while. I'm so lazy. I, I don't even think about I used to think about, you know, but I, I just give, give over to myself that what I want to do, if I want to work right there, just watch television. I, I don't have any – my habits are all over the place. I don't have any rigor to my life. There's such an interesting disconnect between the way you describe yourself and the way other people would see you in terms of being lazy or being – Yeah, I know that. I'm aware of that. I, my productivity has been – appears to be so high for a single person – that it looks like I'm busy all the time, a workaholic. I, do you get any sleep, they say? Well, I mean, I think about what I'm thinking about all the time. But th- that to me is relaxation. I don't understand what work is. Well, work and vacation. Well, let's see, vacation, you do what you want to do. I do what I want to do every day. So am I vacationing every day? I don't understand the words. You must get really annoyed when people ask you about work-life balance. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. I, I think we've done enough. Thank you. Okay, kid. This is the 12th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to DebbieMillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. 
You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie Millman. And if you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store or wherever you get your podcasts.